This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, if you blink, you might miss another press statement on the shutdown showdown. President Obama in the briefing room, Speaker Boehner in the radio TV gallery, Paul Ryan on the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, Harry Reid on the Capitol steps, Tom Coburn, scissors in hand in the well of the Senate, makes you almost pine for Ted Cruz reading Green Eggs and Ham. I, for one, am confused. And given the pace of developments in Washington, what's reality when polyoptics goes in the air may be markedly different from what we know right now here in the studio. Here with us to sort this out, and more importantly, to remind us how we arrived in this mess, will later on be Robert Costa of the National Review, in the minds of many the best-sourced journalist with a mind meld into House Republican leadership. Then it's week six of the NFL season with the Denver Broncos and New Orleans Saints alone as undefeated teams. But the league itself has had its bell rung so much that I'm getting personalized preemptive emails from NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. The ticking time bomb, concussions, and the long-term effects on the nation's most popular sport on the brains of its gladiators. ESPN's Steve Fainaru will be with us. He's the author of the new book, League of Denial. And if you didn't see the Frontline documentary this week, which was based on Steve's reporting, Watch it online before you watch week six of the league, or even your own kid playing Pop Warner. You might not watch football the same way ever again. But first, from touchdowns to shutdowns, I want to welcome my favorite Republican, Matt Makoviak, as my co-pilot this week. The founder of Potomac Strategy Group, Matt served as press secretary to Senators Kay Bailey Hutchison and Conrad Burns. Matt, you're in Washington today. Give us a rundown of what you're seeing and hearing. And I I enjoyed your retweet of The Onion. Psychiatrists deeply concerned for the 5% of Americans who approve of Congress. <laughs> As someone, I forget if it was McCain or somebody would say, we're now down to um, to blood relatives <laughs> and paid staffers at this point. So, uh, no, it is a fascinating time to be in Washington. And, and we're seeing a, a moment in politics where, uh, you know, there's just so much on the line and so much that's happening so quickly and so many different forces that are impacting the process simultaneously that it's just very hard to see with divided government how you get to an end game where everyone can can call it a win and, and save face. And really that's kind of the reality of where we are now. You had this whole defund effort stepped up, uh, you know, in, in August pushed really hard by Jim DeMint at the Heritage Foundation and Senators Ted Cruz of Texas and Mike Lee of Utah. And it started off sort of being a little bit of a passion project from them. It didn't seem like it was going to really have that much of a chance, but with some of the outside groups spinning it up, getting two million people to sign a petition online, really putting pressure, getting talk radio on board, it just built and built and built. And it got to a point where the House Republican leadership had to sign on because the majority of the conference wanted it. So where we are now is it looks like there's going to be some type of debt limit deal for five weeks and we still have the government shut down and they're going to hopefully negotiate to to come to a, a to an agreement on that. But I mean, things are happening so fast and the stakes are so high. It's just a, a really fascinating time to be in Washington. Matt, help me out here. I mean, I I read your tweets faithfully. I consider you a friend. I like you. And yet, you know, but <laughs> and but, you know, you tweet and sometimes you retweet things that are uh, sort of 
uh, applauding of this effort. And and so I wonder aloud, because you're a press secretary, you're a communications guy, why can't your party just win a freaking presidential election, a few more Senate seats, and make your own decisions rather than have a passion play that gets in the way of so much going on in government? Yeah, look, I think a couple things. I think, first of all, um, this this notion that you can't change Obamacare because the election happened in 2012, to me, uh, there's, there's two important points to consider. One is the majority of the House was, was elected in 2012 as well, and every single one there ran on repealing and defunding Obamacare. But, but secondly, when President Obama decided to change Obamacare, uh, uh, upon implementation, things like giving the the employer mandated delay, impacting members of Congress and their staff. There have been, I think, 41 deadlines they've missed out of 82. They've done all that through executive order, not through changing the law through through Congress. And so, I think because President Obama is willing to to make changes to Obamacare, it's entirely appropriate that that Congress take that up too. And so, from my standpoint, no one wanted to see a shutdown. I think both sides are responsible for there not being a shutdown. I understand most people are blaming Republicans. I also think though that that the Democrats don't have a good answer for why they haven't. Uh, the Senate hasn't taken up the 14 uh, clean, independent appropriations bills that the House has passed that would have already funded veterans and parks and NIH and everything else. So ultimately, this is about impacting Obamacare. Ultimately, this is about uh, winning a concession on it. I think ultimately, many Republicans want to defund it. If they can't defund it, they want a one-year delay of the individual mandate. If they can't get that, they want a medical device tax repeal and perhaps an end to the congressional exemption. Uh, but they certainly want something, and they want to impact Obamacare with a concession. And so it, it's an ugly process. We have divided government, so I don't know that we should be totally surprised. But I think, Josh, the thing to, the, the one thing I think to think about is if you truly believe Obamacare is going to change the country for the worse, uh, and, you're, and you run for office not not to be somebody, but to do something. Uh, then then really you have uh, you you have a commitment that you've made you know to your constituency and, and to the country to do everything you can to try to help the country. And so, I you know I, I don't get, I I try not to get in the position of doubting the sincerity of any person. Um, but I don't always see that from the mainstream media and from the left when it comes to conservatives. I mean, I, I, I see them doubt the sincerity and the patriotism in some cases of conservatives. And I think ultimately they're acting because they believe this is in the best interest of the country. And so the shutdown is obviously a, a terrible thing. It's not helpful. My um, hope is it won't last that much longer. But I think Republicans are committed to trying to win concessions on Obamacare because they're, they're convinced it's, it's in the best interest of the country. But let me then not doubt the sincerity of, yeah. of Republicans. Let me doubt the strategy. Strategy. Sure. And and let me ask, you know, aloud whether uh, a, a freshman senator from Texas uh, taking the f- to the floor of the Senate for 20 some odd hours and reading green eggs and ham and that funny onion headline that you tweeted out is not too far from reality. Uh, you do. You might have uh, a, a possible presidential victor in 2016 in in uh, uh, in Governor Christie or uh some of the other candidates but you're you're sort of scuttling your bigger picture for this pyrrhic victory perhaps this week next week uh and, and yet we're going to end up saying the republicans are uh are a minority party and, and only want to make trouble they don't want to lead yeah i'm not sure i see it that way i mean i think ultimately you know the, the politics of the first of all the government shutdown is going to be a year in the rearview mirror by the time that the midterm elections come around so I'm not convinced the shutdown is going to have a huge impact. You have such a small number of House seats that are truly competitive. I think the Cook Report has said something like 17 seats are in play. 
so, you know, the, the margin is so tight for Democrats to take the House back that I don't think ultimately they're going to be able to do it, even if the political environment gets much, much improved for them. Uh, so I think you have to set that aside. Talking about 2016, look, a Republican Party is going to have a huge fight in 2016 between the conservative wing, the Ted Cruz's, the Scott Walker's, the Rand Paul's, uh, and the more establishment wing, which I think you could put a, a Jeb Bush in there, a Paul Ryan, a Chris Christie, perhaps a Marco Rubio, who kind of is in both camps. There's going to be a big fight uh, between between the two wings. I also think with it being an open seat race, you're going to see a, a big fight on the Democratic side, even though Hillary's the overwhelming frontrunner. I do believe she'll be challenged from the left, from someone like Howard Dean uh, or John Hickenlooper or Martin O'Malley or someone like that. So th- there's going to be that fight on both sides, uh, both sides of the aisle. Um, but 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 look to get to your core point about the strategy, there is a lot of there was a lot of disagreement on Capitol Hill about the strategy and about the tactics. And I think I heard Ted Cruz say this say this just earlier today in Washington at a private gathering I was at. He said that you know his frustration and Mike Lee's frustration for the last you know year since he's been in the in, in the Senate is he, he understands that every senator wants to see Obamacare defunded and repealed, but when he would raise his hand in these private senatorial meetings and ask him how we're going to do that, no one had any ideas about how to actually achieve it. And so I think he and Mike Lee just got fed up and said, you know, this isn't about us getting reelected. we got to stop thinking that way. We need to stand up and fight. We need to stand up for conservative principles. We believe this is in the best interest of the country. If we if we if we win this the argument with the grassroots, uh, the the politicians will follow with public pressure. And so that's what they've done. Look, it remains to be seen whether it's successful or not. We don't we really don't know what the end game is here. Um, but I do think they've had a tremendous impact on politics and on and on public policy. And I'm not quite sure that we know where this is headed. Matt, last time you were on, we talked about at what point in the future whether it's 5, 10, 15 years, Texas might go blue. A lot has happened in your home state since then, certainly with Wendy Davis. And I I don't want to get to Robert Costa before I I have you give us all an update of what's happening in your home state and whether Senator Davis is potentially going to make much of an impact in the gubernatorial race. Yeah, I spend 90% of my time in Austin, Texas, where I'm from, and and, and follow Texas politics extremely closely. As you may know, myself and a a Democrat started a a bipartisan website down there to follow politics, mustreadtexas.com, which was created in in the vein of Real Clear Politics, really just for Texas. It's a nonpartisan, bipartisan uh, politics site. And so, you know, when it comes to Texas, Battleground Texas has come in there. Democrats believe that that they they can turn it certainly purple, if not blue, in the next two, four, six years. I think they're their, their best case scenario was always to try to elect a, a, maybe a down ballot candidate for statewide office uh, in 2014, start building a bench. Maybe if you had someone like Wendy Davis have a huge upset, then you could set it up in such a way that Hillary would choose to invest in Texas in 2016 with the with the with the chance of perhaps turning it blue. I've felt from the beginning that those two goals were, were really unachievable. Romney won Texas by two by ten points, uh, you know, a year ago. Uh, Ted Cruz won it easily uh, by ten points. Uh, you know, the numbers in Texas are just too hard. They're just too difficult for Democrats. That's not to say we'll always be a red state, but she did announce. Uh, we'll see how much money she raises. She was $23 million behind the Republican frontrunner, Greg Abbott, our Texas attorney general. And so the challenge for Democrats is they've had no bench in Texas. They haven't won a statewide office since 1994. 60% of the state House and 60% of the state Senate are Republican. So they, they just have a, have a real challenge with a bench, and they have a real challenge raising money and convincing people that races are winnable. And most of the independent experts that you talk to in Texas do not 
not believe Wendy can win. Now, I think Wendy's team believes she can win, but they certainly also believe she can raise a lot of money, and a lot of consultants are going to make a lot of money off of it. So, remains to be seen how it, seen how it plays out. We're still obviously a ways off, a year off from that election in Texas, um, but it's going to be a, a big battle. At the end of the day, from a Republican standpoint, a lot of Republicans are glad she ran for governor for two reasons. One, she has the only marginal state senate district in the state, so we're, Republicans are likely to pick up that state senate seat, which is huge. And secondly, the the money that's going to be contributed to her race in Texas will. Well, you know, money's fungible. It's either going to go to her race or it's going to go somewhere else. It can go to her race or it can go to governor's races that are going to be a lot more competitive in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Florida and others. And so from my standpoint, as a Republican, I'm I'm glad anytime Democrats invest money in an unwinnable race. So um, that that's that's just my sense of this. I don't mean to be cavalier about it. We you know I think Republicans are taking Wendy Davis and Battleground Texas seriously. On the other hand, Texas remains a red state, and I think she has a huge uphill climb and ultimately can't get north of 45 or 46 percent. And Matt Makoviak, I did say you are my favorite Republican, and one of the things you have such a talent for is keeping in your Rolodex the numbers of all the best journalists covering Capitol Hill, and I think you've got Bob Cost on your speed dial, don't you? Yeah, Bob Cost is the Washington editor National Review and has really been really the best sourced and, and most impressive reporter during this shutdown situation and debt limit fight, and so he's really been, uh, he was just at the White House a couple days ago with the president, invited uh, with, with a number of other conservative columnists, including Charles Krauthammer and others, so uh, I think we've got him on the line. Bob, are you there? happy to join you. So I know we're taping this on Thursday and that things are happening quickly. Tell us kind of what the latest is, where do we stand, and and, and uh, kind of talk about how quickly things are moving. Well, it's really interesting to see the dynamics right now within the Republican Party. You see the House Republican leadership aiming to get some kind of six-week extension of the debt ceiling. They want to get the debt ceiling and default off the table. So that's what John Boehner has really spent a lot of time doing and what he's expected to spend some time doing this weekend is get Republicans behind that idea while the government, meanwhile, is probably going to stay shut down. Right. I guess what we've seen is we've seen some of the groups that have been pretty negative about, you know, sort of House leadership strategy over the past few years has said they're basically opposing it, but they're not going to score against it. So that really gives a lot of the House Republicans a kind of a pass if they want to support this. Right. That's exactly right. When you had groups like Red State and Heritage Action come out and begrudgingly give their support to a short-term debt limit ceiling, that was really an opening for Boehner to make his move to try to get something through. Because if outside conservative groups are working against Boehner here, he's going to be in a very difficult position. So this enables him to do something now. Now, tell me, Bob, what are you hearing about? But two things. One is this this Vitter Amendment, which is intended to intended to basically strip the subsidy that goes to members of Congress and their staff and White House and, and executive branch staff. Are you hearing anything about that being added on to the debt limit? It may be added on, but it's unlikely. Uh, what right now to get Boehner may lose some conservative votes because any, a lot of conservatives just plainly don't want to support an extension of the debt limit increase. So right. To get some Democratic votes, if Boehner has the Vitter Amendment, it's going to make it difficult. And a lot of Republicans actually privately don't want to start messing with their staffers, as much as it's a good public rhetoric thing to say that they want to do the Vitter Amendment. A lot of them are uncomfortable with it behind the scenes. Yeah, and a lot of them are underpaid, and, and that's, a, that's a challenge. So I can understand that, having worked on Capitol Hill. What are you hearing about this idea of appointing conferees as well, the, sort of the Paul Ryan idea? Is that going to be part of this? Is that going to be... A, no, it's so, definitely part of it. And Boehner announced that on the Thursday morning Republican conference meeting that what he's trying to do is persuade conservatives that by doing a six-week extension of the debt limit till November 22nd, that's going to enable more talks to happen. And he wants the talks to be through a budget conference. So as part of the six-week extension of the debt limit, he's also going to appoint 
budget conferees, and that's a major part of what he's doing here to try to set up larger, broader fiscal talks. Right. And have you have those members been been uh, been identified in, in terms of who he who he'd appoint? Yeah, he's already looked at people like Dave Camp, Wade is the means chairman from Michigan, Paul Ryan, of course. Uh, Boehner, Canner, they're all part of that group. Sure, 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 sure. And just to, to talk, just for the audience, just talk about kind of how remarkable this last three or four weeks has been. I mean, having myself worked on the Hill from 05 to 09, it's rare that you see leadership basically sort of succumb to the pressure that, that comes from the grassroots that Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and others really spun up and got going during the August recess. I mean, you, you would you would recognize, I suppose, the, the uniqueness of this moment that we're in right now. Oh, it's a fascinating moment, and it something that almost started as a conservative whisper at Heritage Action and in Senator Cruz's office has blossomed into a defund movement in August and September. Then it led, of course, to be tied to the CR, which led to the shutdown. Now it's leading to a debt limit standoff. So it's just a fascinating time to see how the conservative movement, in so many ways, is shaping the policy and the direction politically of the Republican Party. Right, and, and, and really they did that in August, you know, with the with the website and with, with the town halls they held around the country. You know, really they put such pressure uh, on uh, using the outside game to impact the inside game in a way that we haven't seen successfully done. And I'm curious whether you think at this point there's a likely chance that at the end of the day they will get a concession on, on Obamacare. I mean, it seems like that's sort of the the line in the sand that they've that they've drawn. Whether that's uh, you know a, a defund, a one year delay of the individual mandate, something more limited. Do you think at the end of the day that, that they are going to be able to get a concession on Obamacare? That may not really be knowable right now, but but is that your sense that that, that they're likely to succeed in getting at least something? Well, I think conservatives will be disappointed because it won't be a full defund. It won't likely even be a one year delay of the individual mandate. What you're going to see, if anything, and this is even up in the air, is a medical device tax right. appeal, and because both sides are supportive of that. But in divided government, it's going to be very difficult to get something beyond a medical device tax because uh, Democrats are, are really digging in hard on Obamacare, and Republicans already have a pretty fragile consensus on how to move forward. So it's not like they're really speaking as one voice. So just, I, I think if you're looking for Obamacare to be really ripped apart right now, as part of this fiscal standoff, uh, I would lower your expectations. Bob, it's Josh King. Uh, I, I was, I'm wondering, this week you were among a, a group of people who were asked to come to the White House for an off-the-record meeting with President Obama, and I'm sure you, like everyone, will obey, uh, observe the, the rules of the off-the-record uh, ground rules, but uh, does it affect your thinking or reporting to have a better sense of what the West Wing is thinking and the president has in his mind? Oh, of course. I mean, the content of the meeting was off the record, so uh, I can't discuss that. But I think you're right. You're spot on. That to be able to be with any kind of leader, congressional leader, president of the United States, it's informative as a reporter and an editor. It's helpful, and it gives you an insight into uh, how people behind the scenes are really thinking. And, and you know, if you if I remember back to before the 2012 campaign really got underway, a, a oft-repeated soundbite was Mitch McConnell saying, our primary goal is to uh, make Barack Obama a one-term president. And I guess as long as Obama won re-election, uh, Ted Cruz's goal was to make the second term a living hell. Um, in, in your reporting and just looking at, at this senator from Texas, who Matt McCoviak knows well, He's got a historic opportunity to represent his constituency, and yet people like John Podoritz and Joe Scarborough, mainstream Republicans, are branding him uh, as as a, such a firebrand and outside of mainstream thinking. For Matt or you, Bob, does does that make 
Ted ask himself any existential questions, or is he just pleased to to be the lightning rod for all this? I think Cruz is uh, he's in an interesting moment right now because he's become really the leader of the right. He is their spokesman in Congress. He is, in terms of intellectually, politically, the conservative of the time. But at the same moment, he's having difficulty building a lot of friends and allies in Congress. So as he becomes such an outside hero, the question is, can he repair relations on the inside and become more than just an outside activist and agitator? Can it be he has the talent and the political acumen to become one of the major congressional leaders? There's no doubt about it. I mean, the way he's been able to shape Congress and the national debate in just eight months in office has been astounding. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, I think he's still a rookie senator, and he's trying to find his way to at the same time as he ascends politically. Yeah, and I think that this Matt here, I think one of the things you might be able to to to, to shed some light on, that I think the audience would find really interesting and fascinating, is is the extent to which members of Congress, particularly on the Republican side, have disdain for Ted, and and, and how that's really grown in the past few weeks as he's really taken a lead on this. I mean, having worked in the Senate four years, it's extraordinarily unusual to have a freshman senator lead on a policy issue like he is to sort of force his own way through like like Ted is on this. To, you know, without betraying any confidences, give us a window in on some of that, some of that behind the scenes, uh, you know, interactions that you're, you're, you're seeing and you're reporting and you're hearing about in terms of some of the vitriol that's going towards uh, Senator Cruz. Well, there's nothing more that a Republican senator hates for and to have their conservatism questioned, to have their conservative on a few days questioned. And Cruz never did it really directly, but he made statements that made it seem like if you weren't on board with defunding and tying it to the continuing resolution to fund the government, you somehow were not as conservative. And though Cruz, I don't think, ever said that explicitly, it came across that way to a lot of his colleagues. And in politics, a lot of things are kind of the gray area in between. And uh, perhaps unfairly in some ways, he got just kind of lumped into this this consensus by a lot of his Republican colleagues that he was going after them, and that he was trying to question their own uh, conservatism. And there's nothing that gets them their skin more. And so that's really just, I think, caused a rift. Uh, but it's not a rift, I think, that's going to be unhealable. It's something that he can, I think, fix over time. Yeah, one, one last thing for me here. I think with, with us now looking at, at next Thursday, the October 17th being the deadline the administration has set, what is your sense right now of the timeline for what goes forward, given the rules that the Senate will have for passage in the House? Is this something that the House passes Monday and the Senate passes Wednesday? or Do you have a sense of that yet? I think the uh, six-week extension yeah. of the debt limit is likely to pass the House. I think Reed reluctantly will have it pass the Senate. And I think that this thing is just going to continue on as a long discussion, a long, broader fiscal negotiation. Bob, the only question I have is, uh, you know, this is so much National Review's moment because, uh, and your moment, because uh, people like me, a mainstream news consumer uh, born on uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Morning Joe, uh, you know, I get a little frustrated now with NBC News that they're trying to boil this all down to whether widows at Dover Air Force Base will get a death benefit and who will be paid for. But you're bringing us really behind the scenes into the mechanics of what's going on here. And and what does it feel for you as sort of leading the coverage of this mysterious body of House leadership uh, and and helping people like me understand it like never before. What's what's it like for you every night as you try and put down that BlackBerry or iPhone and say, no, I have one more tweet to put out? Well, I think it's uh, it's very kind of you to say all those things, but just old school reporting. What's happening and why? Who who are the players? Who are who's shaping the discussion behind the scenes? 
Why are things happening? Uh, that's really what I'm getting at, and we just have a very specific need at National Review. Cover House Republicans, cover the conservative movement. So it is kind of our sweet spot as the country starts to pay attention to this sometimes uh, overlooked group of rowdy conservatives, uh, uncomfortable moderates, and just all 233 House Republicans. It's a, it's a fun beat, and it's been great to cover them. Robert Costa, National Review, thanks so much for spending a few minutes with Matt and me. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Bob. Matt, you and I get a chance to uh, switch gears a little bit, turn to one of our favorite subjects, football, and a talk with Steve Fanaru of ESPN. Absolutely. The, uh, this, is, this, this, this PBS Frontline documentary got a lot of attention this week, and it's a major issue. And for a lot of people who like the NFL, this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Steve Fanaru, ESPN, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Steve, a Roman civilization collapsed uh, well enough in time to end gladiatorial combat that often ended with the deaths of the gladiators, unless the government shutdown brings to a stop everything that we know and love in the United States and America. The NFL, the National Football League, is not going away anytime soon. Right. What, what will they do instead to protect their players? Well, I think they're in a they're in a difficult spot. You know, I think if you the NFL will tell you right now that they're they're trying to take measures that will make the game safer. And I think the real question around that, yeah, well, there's a couple questions around that. One is, um, can they really do it? When you listen to the neuroscientists who are the leading experts on this on this issue, they will tell you that the issue is the main the main problem is not. You know, sort of blow-up hits that we see every week, where um, someone's in the open field and they get laid out. That the real issue is the pounding that occurs on every play, particularly at the line of scrimmage, and that this repetitive pounding can and has led to the cascading sort of series of neurological events that that lead to brain damage. So that's one one major problem. And I think the other the other issue is a marketing issue, which is um, if they if they change the game, if they continue to change the game, you know, how how much can they t- change it to the point where we'll still want to watch? Because it's an inherently brutal and violent sport, and that's certainly one of the things that makes it attractive to many people. And I would include myself in that. And, you know, if that's one of the reasons we watch, if that's one of the reasons we watch, you know, if how far can they go to change the game to make it safer before they've changed it in a game that makes it less popular? Where did you grow up watching football? In the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so Montana was your guy. What was your era? Yeah, it was that era. It was Montana Rice era, and uh, you know the Forty Nine er dynasty and the and the catch and and candlestick. And I'm I'm a season ticket holder. I'm a Forty Nine er season ticket holder now and um you know and looking forward to the new stadium next year and you know they're a really exciting team you know they're a very physical team too i want i, I don't know if i i'm a subscriber i think of the nfl app because i like you am a fan of the new england patriots uh, yeah. across the uh, the other side of the country and so I, because i'm on roger goodell's uh, personal email list i got this email from him uh, a couple days ago uh, second paragraph it includes this is roger talking it includes a commitment to deliver the game that the fans love and the safety that players deserve as a league we have an unwavering commitment to player health and making our game safer at all levels this is and will remain our top priority we hope that our commitment to safety will set an example for all sports through the tagliabue and the roselle era was that always true 
I think that if you read our book and um, and if you see the the documentary that you referred to, it would be hard to arrive at that conclusion. You know, Paul Tagliabue said quite publicly that he was very skeptical that concussions were a major issue in the NFL, and um, you know he called it a packed journalism issue and essentially believed it was a media creation that concussions were very low in the in the NFL something like one or every three or four games but you know there was a lot of attention to the issue that was created by the you know very high profile injuries Troy Aikman and and Steve Young and Al Toon and Merrill Hodge and so he uh, he created essentially an NFL research arm called the mild traumatic brain injury committee which over a period of nearly two decades made the argument that Tagliabue himself had, had made, that concussions weren't a big deal in the NFL. And then NFL players, in fact, were, were, were essentially superhuman, that they didn't get brain damage from, from playing football. And, of course, this flew in the face of a lot of accumulating evidence that, in fact, the opposite was true. There were the there were signs that brain damage was occurring in very horrific ways and in some of the game's most prominent stars and um, and that the, the league was facing a mounting health crisis. As you were watching uh, Montana to Dwight Clark and I was watching Steve Grogan to uh, uh, Randy Vitaha, I mean, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, there was Mike Webster and the documentary League of Denial begins so profoundly with, I guess it was Kirk Gowdy's voiceover uh, at one of the games and talking about Webster's uh, role in the, in, uh, on, on the offensive line of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I want to hear a little bit from Dr. Amalu uh, and, the, and uh, the narrator, Will Lyman, talking about uh, what happened to Mike Webster after football. I looked again. I saw changes that shouldn't be in a 50-year-old man's brain, and also changes that shouldn't be in a brain that look normal. He saw collections of tau protein, collections which shouldn't be there in someone of Mike Webster's age. And then this is what jumped out at him as he looked at it through the microscope. Dr. Amalu believed he saw physical evidence of the long-term damage playing football could have on the brain. It was a scientific first. After I looked at it over and over and over and over, I was convinced this was something. Listening and watching Dr. Amalu, it's such an interesting character in this story because he did not grow up watching Joe Montana. He did not know what he was going to find in the uh, in in the room in which he conducted the postmortem on Mike Webster. What's his role in this story? Well, I, you know, I'm really glad you asked that because you know, Mark and I, we really believe that that Bennett Amalu is 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 really the most fascinating person in in all of this. You know, he's a a guy who grew up in the middle of the Nigerian Civil War. He came to the United States to study medicine. He didn't know any. He ends up in Pittsburgh. He doesn't know anything about football. And, um, you know, he's never been to a Steelers game and doesn't know anything about the rules, has no idea who Mike Webster even is when he ends up on the autopsy table. He's just the junior pathologist in the office who happens to be working that day. But he just finished his neuropathology studies, 
And uh, he's curious because he's seeing these reports that, that on television of what happened to Webster, which is basically, you know, he went through a, a, a long descent into madness after his plane career ended. And so Amalu uh, decides that he wants to save Webster's brain for study and look for signs of, of neurodegenerative disease. And, and, you know, little does he know at this point that that's never been detected in an NFL player. And so when he does find it, and then when it's confirmed by people who are far more experienced than him, his mentor at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Ron Hamilton, and Steve Dukoski, who's a leading Alzheimer's expert in the, in the country, um, you know, he publishes it with the idea that the NFL is going to welcome him with open arms and, and you know, that he's providing information that can help the players potentially be safer. And, in fact, the, the league sets out to destroy him professionally and get his paper retracted and, and just tell everyone that he's wrong. And let's hear a little bit from that effort to push back. I want to hear uh, Roger Goodell, number seven. The evidence is that our doctors are making excellent decisions. Uh, that's proven by the six-year study that we have and the research that's been done that in, uh, looks at that issue uh, intensively. So, Steve Fainaru, Dr. Amalu goes also, I guess, out to San Diego after Junior Seau uh, commits suicide by shooting himself uh, in the chest to perhaps preserve his brain. Uh, this becomes sort of the end of the road for Dr. Amalu and the study of uh, CTE in the NFL, doesn't it? Yeah, so so Amalu, you know, after he gets involved in this in this issue, uh, finds himself under the attack to the point where he winds up as a very much a marginalized figure. You know, he's a he's a he's a quirky guy. He's a very uh, eccentric guy. There are a lot of things about him that are that are interesting, and some people find troubling. You know, he he he's very mystical. You know, he believes that he can communicate with the people that he autopsies. That he can communicate with the dead. You know, he's 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 very indiscreet. You know, he'll show autopsy photos that, you know, are very public places. But at the same time, nobody's really questioned the science. So when Junior Seau kills himself, it's now 10 years after, you know, the, the situation with, with Mike Webster. And he's very much trying to stay involved, but is on, on the outside. But he ends up, um, he ends up in the autopsy room with, with Junior Seau and, uh, and ends up uh, beginning to do the work to harvest his brain. At that point, the the chaplain for the the San Diego County Medical Examiner walks into the room and he says, literally, uh, Houston, we have a problem. And that problem was that he had just gotten off the phone with uh, Junior Seau's son, Tyler, who told the chaplain that he had that he himself had talked to the NFL, which uh, which warned him that that Amalu's research was bad and that he was unethical. And at that point, that he wanted, and Tyler Seau told the chaplain that he wanted he didn't want Amalu touching his his father. And at that point, Amalu simply walks out of the room and goes back to San Francisco and uh, and is out. And um, you know, it speaks a lot to a lot of different things. You know, the the marginalization of Amalu, and of course, the power of the NFL to insinuate itself into the science. And the NFL. Goodell, Aiello, they point to big branded organizations like the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, that might be the better repository for Junior Seau's brain. But eventually the the analysis of the autopsy and Seau's brain come back with the finding that that he suffered from CTE. Exactly. So the, the, the 
they actually sent it to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and and the NIH, you know, the, and the NFL's logic is that people like Amalu and and others like like Boston University, they believe that they now have a vested interest in this issue and that they may be biased. That's the NFL's claim that they've become known for their interest in CTE, and so therefore they're looking for it and looking for connections. Whereas the the National Institutes of Health is a government organization that's more neutral. They can be like Switzerland. So Sayo's brain ends up at the NIH. And they sent it to five different neuropathologists, all of whom find unanimously that, that Sayo had the same disease as Mike Webster. Uh, my colleague, Matt Makoviak, is here. I, I want to go down to uh, M- Matt's home state of Texas and hear a little bit of uh, football agent Lee Steinberg talking about his client, Troy Aikman, because the, the footage that you that is shown in the Frontline documentary, League of Denial, and the, the reporting that you and your brother have done and then just to hear people like Aikman and Steve Young, these personalities who are so smooth in the broadcast booth, but so scared of what they might have endured is just amazing in the documentary. I went to visit Troy, who was sitting in a darkened hospital room, all alone. The room is dark because Aikman can't even stand looking into the light. It's, you know, it's this sort of surreal scene where the city is celebrating and the quarterback who won the game is in the hospital with his agent. He looked at me and he said, Lee, where am I? And I said, well, you're in the hospital. And he said, well, why am I here? And I said, because you suffered a concussion today. And he said, well, who did we play? And I said, the 49ers. And he said, did we win? Yes, you won. Did uh, I play well? Yes, you played well. Did, what does that, and, and so, what's that mean? Uh, it means you're going to Super Bowl. Steve Fainaroo, your reporting on talking to people like Troy and Steve Young and what, what the sort of elite of the game back then were saying, how does that jive with your reporting currently as an ESPN reporter when you talk to people like Tony Romo or Tom Brady or Ben Roethlisberger? Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about what's going on now is that I don't think that the culture of the players has really changed much. You know, the players want to play. Their impulse is to play. The NFL is just such a Darwinian world. You know, if you if you if you get hurt and you're out, you could lose your job and your livelihood and, you know, your your support for your family. And so the players much the same as they have always done want to go back on the field. And of course, the the, the 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 biggest evidence of that came last year in San Francisco. I was at a I was at this game where Alex Smith gets a concussion. Um, he reports it to the trainer. They do what they're now supposed to do and they pull him out of the game. He loses his job to Colin Kaepernick and you know, Alex Smith is now in Kansas City doing really well, but he's in Kansas City and Kaepernick's the quarterback. So um, I think that I, I honestly don't think that the, the 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 attitude has really changed. Nor do I ever think it will change. Partly because of the way the economics of the league are set up, and the job security issues, and partly just because of the culture in the in in the in the NFL. You know, if you're a tough guy, you know that's a that's a prized commodity. That's a you know that's a valued that's a valued uh, quality to perform your job in, in the NFL, and so that's going to be at a premium. At the junior ranks, Steve, Pop Warner, junior high school, high school, 
Uh, are messages like Harry Carson's or Steve Young's getting through? Is there a change in who's getting into the game? Well, um, I mean, I guess I would say you don't, like, I don't think you really need to be a, a an investigative reporter to see that. You know, it's like all of us know that that around the country at this point, there's a conversation going on in households where, where, where parents have kids who are playing contact sports. And that conversation is, is basically around how much risk are we willing to expose our kids to, um, you know, so they can do something that they really enjoy. And, of course, reap the benefits of playing football, of which there are many. You know, I mean, football is not – there's been a lot of comparison about the way the NFL has dealt with this issue to big tobacco, and we've drawn that comparison. Yeah. But at the same time, foot, football isn't smoking. You know, smoking is no, – nobody misses smoking, you know, the, the prominence of smoking. I mean, if football went away, we'd, there'd be a massive hole in our culture. And um, – uh, and that's, I think, what makes one of the that's what makes the issue so tough. And, and I think one of the things that's so this really, I don't know that it really comes through in the in the film because it wasn't it wasn't really part of the film, but it's a big part of our book. And the, the people who ultimately were alerting the NFL to this issue are, by and large, except for Amalu, who of course came from a foreign country, the 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 other the people who are trying to alert the NFL to this issue are people who love football almost unanimously and are trying to help the NFL get its arms around this issue. And, you know, they're being slapped down at every turn. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about it is that, is that the, 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 the outcome of this issue and how this sort of turns out in, in the long run is going to be determined by people who love football. And, uh, you know, and that's, uh, that's an interesting thing. Matt Makoviak, a, a Texas without Friday Night Lights, without the Jerry Jones. What's the perspective down there? Boy, it's hard to imagine, right? I mean, football's such a big part of Texas, and you know, you don't schedule weddings during football season. Uh, you don't, you don't play plans on Friday night. You could rob every bank in in West Texas if you wanted on a Friday night because everybody's at the game. You know, I, I was able to watch your your documentary uh, earlier this week uh, online, and and I I came away with it with a couple couple questions. I think one is, how surprised were you at the sort of um, ostrich approach the NFL took in 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 you know sort of choosing not to engage with you guys at all and I mean clearly that was not effective in the least and what, what do you what is your sense of what their strategy was in terms of just trying to essentially give you the Heisman right uh, the whole the whole way through yeah I think it's an interesting question because I agree with you like I don't think from a you know if there were if there were from a public relations standpoint I don't I don't know that it was the best course of action um, at the same time I, I guess I understood it you know at the time that for for almost all the time that we were reporting on this book they were embroiled in a in a lawsuit that involved you know thousands of former players who were who were alleging the exact issue that we were investigating you know whether the NFL spent a period of years concealing um, you know the link between football and brain damage um, and so it wasn't you know it, it, it wouldn't have surprised me and I have no idea where this is going on whether their lawyers were telling them look you don't be saying anything publicly about this you know because you could have a, a bearing on the lawsuit so I I think we got it um, you know at the same time we we were able to, to to reach people who had knowledge about what the NFL was doing at the time, people who were on the MTBI committee, some of whom spoke publicly and disavowed the research, and some of them who spoke to us, 
you know, privately and explain to us more about the inner workings of what was going on. Of course, we still have a million questions, um, you know, in part because the NFL wouldn't wouldn't cooperate. Um, so I, I guess I get it, but I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I'm not sure it was the ultimately the, the, the best course of action for them. You know what I was also wondering? I, I did catch a, a critical piece written by an author named Dan Flynn. I, I don't know if you're aware of him. I think he wrote a book called The War on Football, Saving America's Game. Mm. And he has a somewhat critical piece about the documentary, calling it um, sensationalistic and sort of you know, going after some of the arguments that are in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. What what kind of criticism have you found in these, just these few days since this came out? And right. and is any of it? Do you, do you feel like any of it is is merited? Um, I haven't seen that piece, so yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly what his um, what his criticisms are. Um, you know, I I do think this issue of whether the you know, whether the film and the book are, are sensationalized. You know, some of it revolves around the claims of Anne McKee, who's a neuropathologist at Boston University, who has studied more uh, brains from NFL players than any other scientist at this point. This is a 45-year-old with terrific disease. I mean, he had florid disease. He has tau in all these regions of his brain. Dr. McKee had examined thousands of brains, but the location of the damage from CTE was different. I remember my feeling. I, I was scared. I was really scared. It really was a turning point. It was a, a new understanding that, hey, you know, this might be bigger than we think. And she believes and has said publicly to us that, um, that she thinks that shocking numbers of, of NFL players are going to have this disease. And uh, and that um, and that she she fears that that every NFL player might on some level have some form of it, and you know that's obviously a very, very provocative, newsworthy statement, particularly coming for somebody who has as much experience from her. And I guess what I would say is that you know she comes by her opinions honestly, and the research that she did to arrive at those opinions was funded in large part by the National Football League, which gave her a $1 million grant to study this subject in 2010. And so um, if that's, if she's being sensational, that's the context in which it's occurring. You know, we, I do think that we go out of our way to present alternative arguments because we know that a lot of this science isn't settled. And we're not scientists, so we want to get as much you know, as much out there as possible. We know that the prevalence of this disease has not been established. It's not known at this point. And so it's impossible to know the risk. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess that's my feeling on, on that issue. There was a criticism that was raised by Mike Florio at NBC who does pro football talk. Yeah. And I actually agree with it. You know, he, he said he was raising this question about why the, the role of the NFLPA wasn't examined. And, um, and you know it's it, it is a, a, a it's an issue that Mark and I have talked about a lot and and really frankly you know I think I don't know what the implication is he seemed to be suggesting that we did it purposely to sort of put all the blame on the NFL but that's not true we we made a conscious reporting decision to really focus heavily on the league and the reason for that was simple is well there were a couple one was we felt that it was the NFL 
that was doing the main research on this issue and was leading the way um, for the league in terms of how it was dealing with the issue. And we also had a limited amount of time to do it. You know, like we have deadlines, just like all journalists, and we had to deliver the book by a certain time. And so even though we did a lot of reporting, I think, if we had if we had gone down the path that Florio is suggesting, I think that it would have um, it would have been really difficult to to do other aspects of the book as comprehensively as we did. You know, if we had another if we had another year or maybe even another six months, I would have loved to have gotten into that and exactly what the NFLPA's role was, because we do know that the that the that the union was antagonistic toward people who were trying to raise this issue, and some of that is is in the book. Um, but I don't disagree with them. I, I think it's an issue, and I think it's a um, I think it's a valid criticism. I guess the the one last thing that I'd be just be curious about is is you know given how how globally economically significant the NFL is and how 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 globally significant it's become they've got three games in London next year there's they're clearly moving towards expansion into Europe and into Mexico you know a lot of people care about what the future of the NFL is I think most people also want these players to be protected and and not have their lives ruined after their careers right but there's also a desire to keep football at its essence uh be a a violent but yet safe game i mean have you found anything so far in terms of a consensus between the medical side of it and the sort of more purist football folks that is there any way to try and you know try and solve this issue in a way where you can keep both sides happy uh there's i don't think there's any consensus no um, you know, my own personal opinion is that um, I want the game to stay the way it is. Um, you know, I, I, to me, the issue is about the information. You know, the NFL spent a couple decades, you know, burying the information that would have been very useful to, to its players and, and to the public. You know, because, you know, most people who play football aren't going to play in the NFL. And so the decision of whether to play football is a fundamentally different one at the peewee and, the, and you know, Pop Warner and, and high school level than it is at the NFL. The NFL players are, are grown men who are doing this as a profession. And I think if you asked each and every one of them whether they would do it again, you know, 99% of them would probably say, say yes. So they're doing this of their own volition. And so I do think this sort of movement to make NFL football safer, to me, you know, I don't I, – I, I'm not opposed to, you know, like changing the kickoff rules to um, lessen the collisions, but I do think that I like football in part because it's raw and violent and, you know, and balletic. And so um, I'm, you know, I'm wary of, of rule changes at that level. I think the youth sport, youth leagues is a completely different story, and, that, and there has to be a movement to, to make those, um, to make football at that level as you know, as safe as possible. If that means, as some people have suggested, no tackle football before four, the age of 14, so be it. You know, that seems like a very reasonable solution to yeah. me. If it means, you know, if it means draconian rules in in high school football that would that would limit the amount of of uh, head on head contact. Um, you know, I, I think that's all very reasonable. But I think at the NFL level, these guys are pros. They earn a living doing it. If they have full information, if the league is leveling with them and they know exactly what they're getting into, you know, I think that's fine. Steve Fanaru, uh last question, I guess, from us, and let's get back to your work. We had John Skipper on this show a couple months ago while we were with him at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and very straightforward, transparent guy. Yeah. Obviously, ESPN 
has a huge business relationship with the National Football League. I, you would probably be in a much better position than myself to put a number on the value to the Walt Disney Company and ESPN of the games and, and what reporting from a highlight standpoint the league means to ESPN and the network. What are the conflicts and, and challenges that you have as an investigative reporter in John Skipper's world to create a book and participate in a documentary that when you see still images of that NFL spouse trying to get into the meeting with Roger Goodell makes the NFL commissioner look horrible? Well, I think that, that ESPN is um, is in a really uh, a really interesting position because it's a huge... It's huge in its own right. It's a forty billion dollar company, and uh, its 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 biggest business relationship is with the NFL, and that is because the league is so popular. I mean, the, the ESPN has a fifteen point two billion dollar contract to broadcast Monday Night Football, and as we note in the book, that comes out to about one hundred and twenty million dollars a game, which is like you know staging. Uh, you know, a hot Harry Potter movie every every week. I mean, it's just huge, huge money. And so, you know, here we are in our little cubbyhole of investigative reporting, um, you know, trying to look into uncomfortable issues around, one, you know, ESPN's biggest product. And that's a that's a difficult thing. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, ESPN has a long history of really great journalism. It's part of what makes the network great. And, you know, ESPN was on top of this issue since 1994 when Greg Garber, who's still at the network, did some great pieces on, on concussions in the NFL, groundbreaking work, and, um, and the NFL has continued to publish that work. The stuff that happened around the Frontline documentary where, where ESPN ultimately pulled its, um, its branding off of it to me, it just it encapsulated a lot of the tension that exists at the network. But my feeling is that, you know, I, first of all, I went into this job, you know, with my eyes wide open. I knew what the relationship was, and 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 so I wanted to know, um, you know, is that going to make it impossible for us to do our work? But in fact, the opposite is true. You know, at a time where investigative reporting is shrinking all over the country, including my former newspaper, the Washington Post. Um, ESPN is pouring massive resources into into doing this work. The, the ESPN Outside the Lines Investigative Reporting Unit is probably the largest investigative reporting unit in the country. And the people who work there are just unbelievable. Dwayne Bray, Dwayne Bray and Chris Buckle are two of the best investigative editors in the country. Don Van Atta has won three Pulitzers at the, at the New York Times. Mike Fish, T.J. Quinn, uh, you know, I could just go on and on about the great journalists who are working there, and um, I'm, you know, I'm proud of it. I, and I know we all know that there's this issue going on, and nobody was thrilled when ESPN pulled its branding off of the documentary. But the reality is that neither that documentary nor the book would have been created without ESPN. And so, um, so I'm just grateful. I'm, I really am. I understand the tensions, and uh, and I think John Skipper is really great, honest uh, leader of the company. And, um, and I think he's in the, in a difficult, he, he's navigating this difficult situation, you know, as best he can. Steve Fainru, author of League of Denial, uh, and with his brother, a major presence in the frontline documentary of the same name. You can see it online. And you should certainly read Steve's book. Thanks so much for joining Matt and me this week on Polyoptics. Thank you. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. 
Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. Thank you.